for Fantline. Blessings to you for tuning in. In this episode, I'll be talking about racism in the Constitution and systemic injustice. I've traveled all over the world from the Bahamian Islands to Spain to Cuba to Saudi Arabia to the continent of Africa, but there is no other place for me to live than in the United States of America. All those places mentioned are nice, but it's not home. But that's not to say home is perfect, because it's not, and here's why. Fanline will be back in a moment. Okay, we're back. I'm hearing some white people and a few delusional blacks say that systemic racism doesn't exist. Black people like Candace Owens and the wayward thinking of Brandon Tatum who denounces the thought of systemic racism saying it's not true and that black people are not oppressed in America are points of interest to white America who think the same way. And here's the thoughts of Chad Wolf, Secretary of Homeland Security, who was interviewed on the CBS, um, excuse me, on CBS this morning. I'm asking, Mr. Secretary, is, I mean, statistics show that black people are more likely to be shot than white people by police officers. Is there an attempt, a broad attempt in this administration to address the issue of potential racial bias within police departments? Absolutely. Again, I think the president's been uh, talking about this for some time. I think what we have to uh, realize is understand is is look at the law enforcement community as a whole. And by and far, these individuals that put on the badge every day and the, and the uniform every day are, are good people that do the right thing, that don't abuse their power. There is a small, small minority that do that. We need to president's talked about that. I've talked about that. I believe A.G. Barr has talked about that. So we are looking at that. But this notion that there's systemic racism uh, in our law enforcement community, uh, I dismiss that. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. That says that we have installed and designed a system that installs racist beliefs throughout our law enforcement community. That's just not true. But we we need to do is we need to hold those that abuse their power uh, we need to hold them accountable, uh, and we need to address that. We need to make sure that there are consequences to that, and I think that sends the right signal. 
So then how do you address, though, what happened to George Floyd? How do you address the series of videos that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years and actually beyond that, Mr. Secretary? Uh, again, I, I, what I have said about uh, the death of George Floyd is absolutely tragic, should not have happened. And again, we need to hold those that abuse their power, that abuse the badge that they wear, we need to hold them accountable. But when we talk about reforming uh, law enforcement, so if you want to look at the law enforcement culture, you want to look at their practices, you want to make sure that you give them the training that they need, you need to give them the oversight that they need, and the leadership that they need. Uh, and that's what the president's doing through the CEO, it ties some federal funding to that. We need to make sure that we give law enforcement the resources to change those practices and that culture uh, instead of talking about defunding law enforcement agencies. It's just the wrong way to go. Okay, that was from um, <clears throat> Chad Wolf, Secretary of Homeland Security. Now, this is coming from the top, okay? This is coming from the top. And when you have this way of thinking coming from the top, it filters down to everyone else. The president thinks this way. The, the secretary, the, the main man for Homeland Security is thinking this way and saying that, no, there is no systemic racism in the uh, police department. Wow. Really? There, there's none? And then we have, uh, and then we have um, Mr. Tatum and Miss Owens thinking the same way, and they're black, and these two are black, and then they're thinking this way that we're not, we we as black people are not oppressed. Wow, you talk about a brainwashing right there <clears throat> to dismiss. The um, the countless lives that have been lost under the hands of police officers to dismiss people being falsely um, imprisoned and, and jailed and so forth. And no, please, I, I'm not talking about crimes committed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm not. I'm not talking about crooks and. And say drug dealers and you know people like that. I'm talking about your everyday citizen. I'm talking about the man who or woman who gets stopped by the police officer and then put through the ringer because of the color of their skin. That's what I'm talking about. All right, that's what I'm talking about. And please stop telling me about uh, um, the the few bad apples. Stop telling me about that because right now. The way I the way I see things is if you're black and you get stopped, you're guilty until proven innocent. Not it's 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 not innocent until proven guilty. With black people, it's guilty until proven innocent. And then you're treated as if you're guilty. You're treated as if you have murdered someone. That's the bottom line, and it has to stop. And for for Anyone who says that there is no such thing as systemic racism, you're full of it. You are full of it. You know, there is systemic housing, unfair housing. There is, we, are, we are taxed unfairly. Um, 
discriminatory hiring and <clears throat> I know that laws have been put in place to um to to quell that that's good but it's not enough or going across the board the and the prison the prison system is used as a, a modern day slavery a modern day slave house and, and I, I'll get into that in a, in a little bit here also but change has to come from the top and it's not going to be it's not going to be as long as secretary of homeland security chad wolf continues to think this way fantline will be back in a moment okay i'm going to uh we're back with fantline and i'm going to read some excerpts from the constitution the us constitution and then give a uh, a little in-depth look on what it's talking about. Now, it, this may be a little lengthy for you, but please be patient. Because sometimes in order to learn and grow, we have to be patient. So hang with me. <clears throat> it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. The U.S. Constitution opens with a message of inclusivity establishing justice and ensuring domestic tranquility for the people. However, it's what the famous preamble and indeed the rest of the document doesn't address that's more telling. The Constitution's authors leave out their vital distinction between person and property, and in doing so, they ultimately ultimately protect one of history's most oppressive institutions. The absence of slavery in the Constitution is one of the great paradoxes of the, our founding era. The framers were revolutionary thinkers who created what would become the first successfully functioning government, government by the people. Their ideas of fairness, justice, and individual rights are what many world leaders emulate today. Why, then, did so many brilliant minds pledge to be champions of individual rights on one hand, then on another allow human beings to be reduced to chattel? The answer lies in the idea of compromise. The founders compromised their morals Many were regarded as being oppressed to slave, excuse me, opposed to slavery, and in power. In some cases, states bowed to slaveholding counterparts in order to ensue the Constitution would be ratified. In the name of economics, slavery, when all was said and done, was both profitable and convenient for many white Americans, and not just in the South. 
The term slavery conjures images of one race enslaving another. In fact, white colonists bought and sold the labor of white, both white and black servants in the 17th century Americas. Race-based slavery is a younger phenomenon with a long-lasting legacy that America grapples with today. As lifelong bondage of enslaved African Americans became more financially viable, the indentured servitude of whites was phased out. The system proved itself so lucrative that law and legal precedent began to leave future governments leeway for prioritizing economy over morality. Morality did nag at the consciousness of some white Americans. The enlightenment, the enlightenment, excuse me, the enlightenment, (laughs) got a little tongue twisted there. Philosophies of natural rights and growing religious convictions were a nuisance for those profiting from the institution of slavery. The contradiction couldn't be denied. Philosophies that recognized the rights of the individual were juxtaposed against the fact that America had become a place where an entire subset of people were commoditized and dehumanized. The answer was pretty simple. Clarify who gets to be a person and who doesn't. Fabricating a subservient order for those with darker skin allowed our founding generation to define all men and the people as white men. As a result, they guaranteed white men the rights and liberties promised by the Constitution while preserving a thriving economy based on racial oppression. Not everyone agreed with this system. Colonial independence was almost underway when abolitionist groups started to point out the moral excuse me, the moral contradictions of slavery. As America spread into new territories, regional blocks began to form on both sides of the issue. The North was making progress on the abolition front, and state laws began to change regarding slavery. Vermont abolished slavery in 1777 with Pennsylvania following suit in 1780, and other states coming up close behind. Even Virginia made it legal in 1782 for slaveholders to um, manumit their own slaves without first obtaining permission from the state. But further south, where enslaved African Americans made up a vast workforce, the ruling whites insisted on racial hierarchy. The framers went to great lengths to avoid overtly mentioning slavery or slave. In 1840, more than 50 years after the Constitution was ratified, John Quincy Adams would refer to this careful omission as fig leaves, under which the parts of the body politic are decently concealed. Though there were significant pro-slavery voices, 
There were also forward-thinking framers like Oliver Ellsworth, a senator from Connecticut who was optimistic that slavery in time will not be a speck in our country. Though some thought the Constitution's power to prohibit, prohibit slavery, excuse me, the slave trade, would lay the foundation for banishing slavery out of this country. As James Wilson said in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention in 1787, many weren't keen on having their names attached to a document that mentioned slavery outright. Three clauses relating to slavery did make it into the final draft of the Constitution, all after ver varied amounts of debate and compromise during the Constitution excuse me, the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And what it said was, when a state's population is counted for purposes of representation in government and for direct taxation, the enslaved population will be counted as three-fifths of its overall number. Untaxed Native Americans would not figure into this number. So what it means is that slaveholding states get to count their slaves to boost their population numbers. This affects elect electors and representation in Congress and therefore will have more impact on future legislation. The election of the president and by extension, Supreme Court appointments Slaveholding states will also, in theory, have to ante up more direct tax for this privilege. It's a common misconception that this clause represents the amount of humanity the framers were willing to assign to African Americans. In fact, the South was pushing for their enslaved individuals to be counted fully so as to have more impact on, in Congress. What happened as a result is states with large slave populations ended up with more power both in Congress and in the Supreme Court, which undercut the powers of abolition states. Historians differ as to whether or not the South would have made good on their promise to refuse to join the Union without the inclusion of this clause. If it had, would the United States have been able to survive without it? The federal tax benefits that the three-fifths clause had, excuse me, was supposed to have generated never came to fruition. The Southern-led government worked out a tariff-based uh, tax system instead of a direct head tax. So what it says is, if states want to import slaves intentionally, the federal government won't interfere for at least another 20 years. However, this importation will be taxed at a rate of no more than $10 per slave. So what that meant was the framers were aware that the international slave trade would eventually be abolished. If for no other reason than the economy would require it. In order to increase demand for domestic trade, the states received 20 years of 
autonomy to import slaves as as they saw fit before Congress could and did abolish the international trade. So they saw this coming. This is more complicated than a clear-cut morality issue. Virginia pushed hard to abolish the international slave trade because it had the largest enslaved population of any state. And the value of their domestic trade was suffering as the market was being flooded by the arrival of new enslaved Africans. Massachusetts, through which many slaves were distributed, was profiting from the international trade and so supported the grace period. The importation clause was passed despite Virginia's efforts with the 20-year compromise in place. So what happened as a result is the $10 tax on each head was never collected. Some argued that the federal government would be removing that fragile fig leaf if they acknowledged slaves as property, much less made money off the slave trade by collecting the tax. Others saw the tax as anti-slavery because it could be construed as penalizing importation. All in all, the federal government avoided the issue until there was no longer an international slave trade. By 1809, when the international trade was officially abolished, all of the states had already banned it on their own. So if an enslaved person crosses the state lines into a state where slavery has been abolished, citizens of that state are are obligated to return the slave to the owner. Okay. Now, and I'm reading that from the uh, Fugitive Slave Clause of 1787. It says, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service of or labor. And that's what that was talking about. So what that meant was states who abolish slavery have to respect the fact that other states have not. This puts legal slavery as the default scenario and abolition as the outlier. So the results of that, at the time, only two states, Massachusetts and Vermont, had banned slavery. The Fugitive Slave Clause then passed with little debate. Individual states reacted swiftly, like Pennsylvania, for example, passed laws making it more difficult for slaveholders to enforce the law requiring a certificate to prove ownership of the individual in question and prohibiting the use of force. The Supreme Court responded with their ruling in Prigg versus Pennsylvania, making it easier for the Fugitive Slave Clause to be enforced. A century of workabouts by more and more states and the federal government's tightening responses eventually erupted into the Civil War. Many scholars agreed that among all three of the slavery clauses in the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Clause was the most abhorrent. It It implicates 
and involves the federal government and its officers in the active protection of people, people as property. Now, we fast forward to the mid-19th century, and we see what some of the founders predicted. A country no longer able to ignore the moral bankruptcy of slavery despite its continued profitability as new states enter the Union as either slaveholding or free states. The conflict between the two blocks intensifies. Federal law favors the South due to increased representation in Congress, and the Fugitive Slave Act is tightened for northern states in exchange for California's admission of a free, as a free state. Oil all boils over in 1860 when South Carolina succeeds, followed quickly by more southern states. And the civil right and the civil war begins. On New Year's Day, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issues an executive order changing the status of all slaves in the Southern Territory to free. On April 9, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrenders to General Ulysses S. Grant, and the South becomes part of the United States once again. Lawmakers turn back to the Constitution for clarification, drafting and approving three Reconstruction Amendments. And it's important to note that while these amendments became law in the five years following the Civil War, the Constitution at this time was still outpacing culture. Today, many will argue that culture is still struggling to catch up. Now, the 13th Amendment of December 1865 officially abolished slavery in all states. So what it meant was race-based slavery is illegal unless the minority is found guilty of a crime. The inclusion of the word except laid the foundation for a deeply entrenched system of African-American incarceration and other systemic long-standing racially based policies. And I'll read it here in 13th Amendment says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The Fugitive Slave Clause was superseded by the 13th Amendment. By abolishing slavery, the Fugitive Slave Clause had no purpose. Now, the 14th Amendment, July of 1868, guaranteed the same rights to all male citizens and counted every citizen as one when determining representation in Congress. And it says, it's a little lengthy here, but all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction therefore thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges, privileges or 
immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And it goes on. But I'll go to what it means. Overall, all states must accept every human born or naturalized in their state as a full citizen of both the U.S. and that state. That is the definition of African-American as a commodity is no longer legal. Now, the second section eliminates the three-fifths clause and establishes a state's population as consisting of all male citizens over 21, unless they've taken part in a rebellion or have committed a crime, as with the 13th Amendment. The definition and extent of crime is undetermined and dangerously subjective. Now, and this is geared toward black people. Now, the 15th Amendment, February 1870, made it illegal to deprive any eligible citizen, be it already established as a male over the age of 21, the right to vote, regardless of color. It says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Okay, says that. Now, what this amendment meant was states may not refuse any male over the age of 21 the right to vote. The amendment, however, doesn't provide any protection for voters. Keyword here, keywords here. The state doesn't provide any protection for, for voters. And many states look to convert processes like gerrymandering, poll taxes, literacy tests, and other requirements to restrict access for black voters. So see, that was a way of, it was, it's, it's a way of wording things here. Now they knew that blacks were less educated and they didn't have as much money So they would come up with, okay, you have to take a test in order to be able to vote. You have to pass it. You have to pay a a tax in order to vote. All in the means of coming up with with requirements to restrict access for black voters. And for the first time, the Constitution was directly addressing the idea of equality and finally mentioning the word slave. So the lack of clarity around such concepts as equal protection left interpretation up to the states, opening the door for much of the systemic racism we are still faced with after Reconstruction. Jim Crow laws protected segregation in southern states. Education case law would bear the brunt of a still divided nation attempting, and we're still divided, of um, attempting to address the issue issues of the Constitution's framers 
who never outline explicitly. The Constitution didn't provide answers to these questions, but it did pose them. Slavery and its constitutional history continue to impact issues we still face today. The journey to providing an equal education for all Americans is an example of how constitutional laws is interpreted by courts who have set precedent precedents for future generations with rulings on educational equality. In 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson made the South's Jim Crow laws constitutional with a seven to one Supreme Court ruling that a state has a right to provide separate but equal facilities for whites and African-Americans, as long as it wasn't depriving any one of their constitutional rights. 21st century perspective makes state-supported separation of race clearly unethical, but it was the equality piece that was controversial. Separate but equal never really meant equal. Colored facilities were famously inferior, and minorities had no recourse as they were underrepresented in positions of power and influence such as law enforcement, legislature, and the justice system. It took more than 60 years of African-American suffering, unfair and often hostile treatment for Brown versus Board of Education to rule in 1954 that segregation in schools is unconstitutional. Some areas of the country took drastic measures to resist the ruling, like the closing of public schools in Virginia and other other localities like Little Rock, Arkansas. Rather than integrate them in others, white parents who weren't willing to send their children to desegregated schools moved in mass to the suburbs, contributing to a phenomenon known as white flight. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed school segregation for good, but in some areas, resistance continued. Many areas of the United States struggle to this day with disparities between schools and in majority white neighborhoods and schools in majority African-American neighborhoods. So the question remains, the Constitution leaves us unanswered questions, so How do we dismantle the legacies of slavery that the framers of the Constitution allowed to be built around them? In a time when we urge our Congress to reach across the aisle and make compromise, how can we avoid the kind of moral compromises that can cause damage that take take centuries to undo? We can see echoes of slavery in more than just education, the ripples touch voting rights, fair housing, public transportation access, public safety, and incarceration, employment, predatory lending practices, and more. Tracing slavery's fiery path through the Constitution, its amendments, and both law and culture is a reminder that our discussions on current constitutional issues may have similar effects in the future. Where there's ambiguity, There's a test to the Constitution that will shape our nation's path forward from gun rights to 
the expansion of ambiguous executive powers. Where else do we see the Constitution lagging behind culture and where does it come out ahead? It's by asking these questions that we can best understand the role that the Constitution has in our lives and the lives of governments to come. Fantline will be back in a moment. 